Last year, state lawmakers, Republicans and Democrats, came together to do something they rarely agree on, reform policing. Following the murder of George Floyd, we had momentum for the community to get things done, not just in Denver, but across the state of Colorado. If the murder had not happened, we would not have the accountability measures that we have put in place that we do today. Even with Democrats in charge, it would not have happened. On this week's episode of Purplish, we're discussing this year's efforts at the Colorado Capitol to change how police do their jobs. From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Benta Berkland. Joining me in the studio is CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry. Thanks for being here. Hello, Benta. Thank you so much for being on Purplish. Any time. We are recording this episode of Purplish on Thursday morning, April 29th. We started this show with a clip from Democratic Representative Leslie Harrod. She's really been one of the strongest advocates inside the Capitol for police reforms. And we want to focus on what lawmakers are proposing this year. But you can't really look at the bills this year without first understanding what Harrod helped pass last summer. Yes, she passed, not single-handedly, but (laughs) she was a really large force behind Senate Bill 217, which as a non-legislative person, I try to get the numbers out of the bills and just say it was a big police reform bill from 2020. It was on the heels of all of the police brutality protests Mm -hmm. last summer. Um, I remember them voting on this bill. You could actually hear the police protests out on the streets because the windows were open at the Capitol. And that was just coincidence because they had paused the session due to COVID and their return date was the day after he died. I'd forgotten that little detail, Benta. Yeah, it was the issue that everybody was talking about, obviously, in addition to COVID. This bill makes really broad changes to how police officers do their job, from their use of force rules to um, how they keep track of data on who they stop to the fact that they can't use chokeholds, they have to all wear body cams. If you talk to any police chief or sheriff in the state or any cop on the streets, if you mentioned Senate Bill 217, they would absolutely all know what it was and how it's going to change their job. The other thing it does is broadly get rid of qualified immunity. So it makes it a lot easier to sue an individual officer. And I would say that it's not all taken effect yet. Some of the new rules on use of force and not using chokeholds took effect the minute the governor signed the bill. But other things like body cameras and data tracking are going to be taking effect um, in coming years. And so law enforcement agencies are still trying to figure out how they're going to do some of this stuff and pay for some of this stuff as well. And so I think those are some of the objections we're starting to hear or have heard from law enforcement about bills this session. Like, hey, we haven't even ramped up or everything hasn't gone into effect from the bill last summer. And a lot of these proposals this session have run into significantly more opposition than the sweeping bill lawmakers passed, even though that was very complex. It passed so widely, and that really struck me. You know, even law enforcement didn't oppose it. Yeah, and I would say also on that, you mentioned law enforcement agencies kind of pushing back on some of the new bills this year. One metaphor I heard from a sheriff I interviewed was, this is like changing the rules of football in the fourth quarter. We're still Mm -hmm. in the middle of playing on Senate Bill 217, and we don't want to get our rules changed when we haven't even implemented or, or learned how this is all going to affect our jobs. 
And another thing I've, I've learned from you, Allison, and from some lawmakers I've been talking to is a big difference this year is that the crime rate is up. Yeah, crime was higher in every category tracked by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation from 2019 to 2020. And that especially was true in violent crime and auto theft. Mm. Um, But even homicides were up almost 50 percent in Denver alone last year. So I think that's definitely affecting the debate. That really speaks directly to one of the bills this session that's controversial and has had a lot of divisions, and that's Senate Bill 62. And what that measure would do is prevent police from taking someone to jail for misdemeanors and even some low-level felonies that are nonviolent. What are you hearing from people who are advocating for this proposal? You know, most of the criminal justice reform advocates I've talked to point out that Colorado's jail population is out of control. It's high. The jails are packed. And, you know, just to make a quick little 101 on jails versus prisons, county jails, you get arrested, you get sent to jail. A lot of people, 60 to 70 percent on any given day in jail, are pretrial. So they've not been convicted of any crime. They're just sitting in there waiting for their court date, waiting for their hearing. This is Denise Maez. She's a lobbyist for the American Civil Liberties Union. You know, we've known for so long that the majority of individuals in our jails are innocent. And they're largely there simply because they can't afford to pay or the money bond to get out. So they may have a $1,000 bond on a failure to appear for a traffic stop, but they can't afford to pay that, so they're sitting in there. Mm -hmm. Um, So the ACLU has for years worked on how to get the jails less crowded with people who are pretrial. And the sponsor is Democratic Senator Pete Lee. He chairs the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, and he has another goal with this bill as well. And he said he's really hoping that if police can't make as many arrests— they'll be more focused on de-escalation. One example he's mentioned a few times to me is the violent arrest of Karen Garner. And a lot of people may have seen this video on TV or read about it. Uh, She's in her early 70s. She has dementia. From the dash cam video, you can see this elderly woman who looks frail walking on the side of the road next to an open space. The police officer asks her to stop. You just left Walmart. Do you need to be arrested right now? Just within no, no, seconds, no. she's being okay. thrown down Let's and stop. pleading. Come on. I'm going home. I'm going home. I'm going home. On the ground. On the ground. They dislocated her shoulder in the process. After the fact, there's video of police laughing about the incident. This woman was hospitalized. And now there's an independent investigation into this conduct. I should note that Lee's bill is not in response to this incident. It was already introduced prior to the video coming out of this forceful arrest. But he does say that he sees this as kind of the poster child for why his bill is necessary. I think the police need to change their outlook on confrontations with citizens over minor offenses and not immediately think that they need to take someone into custody, arrest them, and take them to jail when a ticket will do the job. And we live in the land of the free with a constitution, but for people to be arrested, of which they are presumptively innocent, to me, I think 
outrages and shocks the conscience of a lot of people. I'm just going to take an alternate view here, which is that I don't know how fair it is for Senator Lee to use this case as an example of why Senate Bill 62 is needed. I don't think most law enforcement officers break elderly women's shoulders when they take them under arrest. I don't think most law enforcement officers take elderly women under arrest. Mm -hmm. Um, This is such an egregious case. It's going to be a lawsuit. The district attorney is looking into maybe whether to charge the cops. So this is an egregious thing. I don't think this represents the tens of thousands of people who are stuck in the criminal justice system right now, either because of what they did or what they didn't do. Um, You know, thousands of people are arrested every day in Colorado, and this doesn't happen. So I just want to push back a little bit. I do feel like in criminal justice, particularly as policy, we're always sort of one news cycle away from things changing, you know. You know, something really bad could happen and and law enforcement goes in and saves the day and they look great. And then something terrible could happen. Like this video comes out where it makes it look like every law enforcement officer in the state is breaking people's bones when they take them under arrest. So why flare up the debate even more? Why don't we just deal with the reality, which is most law enforcement officers are not breaking people's bones when they arrest them. But that doesn't mean that people maybe necessarily need to go to jail for all of the crimes they're going to jail for now. So that's just dealing in the gray. I mean, I I agree that this is a really egregious case, but it's those instances like what happened with George Floyd, that really draw people's attention to this issue and to problems that might be going on a lot. And advocates for the bill really feel that, especially Lee has told me this, that even though his bill doesn't deal with training, he hopes officers will de-escalate situations and not go in there and escalate things like in this case and other cases as well. But I would say, and I would just point, I just I would just push back a little to say that these law enforcement officers are not, they broke a lot of rules. I mean, th- that already exist. You are not allowed to use force like this when you arrest someone. We don't know whether they're going to be held accountable or not. I think they might be. Sometimes when politicians use a piece of news for their advantage, I tend to be skeptical. What are you hearing then from law enforcement and prosecutors about Lee's bill. I think some of the most compelling arguments actually come from crime victims. This is Connie Brenton. She went and testified against this bill early on to the Senate Judiciary Committee. She's just been a repeated victim of shoplifting and crime and her art store on the Pearl Street Mall. With no meaningful consequences or deterrence, they have become emboldened to do whatever they want. They now steal right smack in front of us. They look us in the eye, they pick up the item, and walk out of the store. The situations are so frequent now that we know these perpetrators by name, and they are becoming increasingly violent. They've hurt her employees, actually like physically assaulted her employees, Mm -hmm. and she's just worried that people aren't facing consequences for their actions. I think it's also worth noting that Yes, Democrats are in the majority, but they were definitely not united on this bill either. It's It's been delayed quite a bit and continues to be as they try to work out some of the details. I guess it's been languishing, if you will. <laughs> and Lee did have to make some changes already. Yeah, I feel like this bill, more than any other bill, and at least in this subject matter for me, has its own life. I mean, it has its own 
pro and con Twitter handles, social media, call your lawmaker, tell them to vote yes against this, vote no against this. It's been quite something. You know, it's interesting. A lot of criminal justice bills, the big heated debates are like the death penalty Mm -hmm. and getting rid of the death penalty. That affected three people in Colorado. I mean, it affected the victims, of course, but the three people on death row in Colorado, that was it. But this bill, I think, does have such a big life because we're talking about, like I said, thousands of people a day are arrested for these Mm -hmm. kinds of crimes. It could make a very big impact uh, one way or the other. And I think that's why you're seeing so much debate about it right now. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point. And I talked to Democratic Senator Jeff Bridges. He's one of those Democrats that was not on board with this bill because he just felt it was way too broad. But now he is supporting it. He said what really changed his mind are amendments to the bill that would allow police to arrest someone for entering a home or stealing a car. And he said he just could not in good conscience prevent police from arresting someone for you know, stealing a car. Bridges said it's also important to him personally that police still have discretion to arrest someone if there's a violent interaction. So, for instance, if someone punches another person, you know, they can still face an arrest because it's a violent offense. This is actually why some of the law enforcement um, officers and sheriff's deputies and people I've talked to don't support the bill. It's like you're making, just in this little conversation, Bente, mm-hmm. you're making all these little distinctions between you can arrest this person for this kind of a punch yeah. and if you steal this car, but you can't arrest someone if they do this other kind of assault or they break a window to get into your house, but they don't get into the house. You don't get arrested for that. But if you walk into the house, you do get arrested for that. I'm not sure. The, the amendments are constantly changing, so right. I don't want to be quoted on what the bill, you know, on that particular little piece. But I would say overall, law enforcement officers would say, we don't have law degrees. Like, how am I supposed to know when I'm a single officer responding to a call at 4 a.m. in Brighton about something, a breaking and injuring or something, or an assault at a bar, you know, whether this person deserves to go to jail or not deserve to go to jail. So I want to touch on another thing lawmakers are considering this session, and that is a measure to change the rules around the use of ketamine in law enforcement situations. And Allison, I know you've covered this, and this is an issue you've reported extensively on. The bill is getting through committee now, and it's evolving. Yeah. Uh, you know, so ketamine is considered an anesthetic. A nurse told me it was like an elephant tranquilizer. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's other types of use I want to say that I'm not an expert in. I know there's been some success in treating depression with ketamine. I know it was a party drug. But I'll go to what I really definitely know about, which is the Elijah McClain case. I'm sure most people listening know a little bit about that, which was that he was taken under arrest in Aurora and eventually, after some fighting back and forth with the cops and and Elijah McClain, paramedics arrived and gave him ketamine and he slipped into a coma and died within a few days of that arrest. It got a lot of scrutiny from that. The paramedics who administered ketamine to Elijah McClain, that agency is on a pause from using ketamine now. Mm -hmm. That was Colorado's sort of example on why we need to look at ketamine. You know, the State Board of Health is looking at ketamine use and ambulances. So it sparked a lot of investigation and it's fueling this movement that ketamine needs to be more regulated. Current law states ketamine should only be administered at the direction of a medical professional. But we've seen time and time again through body camera footage, that that is not the case. That throughout Colorado, law enforcement is directing the use of ketamine. The bill that's been introduced at the Capitol that's making its way through the legislature, Representative Leslie Harrod is the main sponsor. So what we have done in this bill is narrowly craft a bill that gets at just that. 
law enforcement overstepping their training and their duties to direct the use of a very powerful drug that has had negative implications on Coloradans and has cost people their lives. There's been a lot of amendments, and we'll, we'll see what it ends up looking like. We're hearing from some in the medical community. They were concerned that it was going to be too restrictive and really prevent paramedics from doing their jobs in different situations. And I wanted to quickly touch on a personal story you have, because <laughs> um, you had firsthand experience with ketamine, not, not getting arrested. But, not getting um, arrested and not being in a club, I have to say. But, you know, you had a really interesting thread on Twitter about how risky it can be. So this is a little bit of a, you know, <laughs> diving into my own diving life, into this um, kind of harrowing story you have. But what happened? Yeah, the last Sunday in January, and I was making uh, butternut squash spinach lasagna, and I was blending spinach and ricotta in the immersion blender, which I don't know if you can picture what those are, but they, you hold them and you kind of just stick the blender. It's like a stick. I know where this is going, and I'm still <laughs> cringing right now. <laughs> yeah. So I blended the spinach and the ricotta, and then I it got stuck in the, the carafe thing. So I took it out, and I accidentally pushed the button being... I was multitasking, accidentally pushed the blend button while I was cleaning it out. And the Uh blade went straight into my index finger all the way to the bone, actually broke the bone. Uh. I think the most horrifying thing about all of this was that the blender was stuck to my finger. And so I got into the ambulance with the blender on my hand. They gave me fentanyl right away. Then I get to Denver Health, and I'm laying there, and they give me another uh, thing of fentanyl. I still was feeling pain, though, because fentanyl only just numbs your whole body. Mm. Um, And I was still also pretty agitated because I still had the blender attached to my hand. So a nurse came in and said, I'm going to give you ketamine. Do you know what that is? And I said, I do, because I've done a lot of reporting on Elijah McClain. You're like this one patient (laughs) who's, I truly do know what ketamine is. I do know what ketamine is. And she said, oh, well, I'm not going to give you nearly that much, is what she said to me. She's like, I promise I'm not going to give you nearly that much. I'm going to give you a small dose and ask me how much I weigh. And they gave it to me. It was the most uncomfortable I, I can remember being in my life. Wow. It felt like the pillow was coming out through my eyes that I was laying on. Um, I immediately sort of fainted. Then I my oxygen levels dropped and I had to get oxygen because I couldn't breathe. I completely blacked out. I had two doses of fentanyl before this, too. So maybe that had something to do with it. But I think the point is, when you give somebody ketamine, you don't, and you don't necessarily know what they had in their body first, right? What had they taken beforehand? Whether it was Tylenol or LSD or marijuana or mm. alcohol. I mean, who knows who, how ketamine is interacting with somebody and their system when they've already had something else given to them in advance or they've taken mm. something in advance. Um, it wasn't a pleasant experience, but I was in a hospital setting. And so, um, you know, I was I had an IV that I had a heart rate monitor. I was had oxygen given to me. Um, I wasn't laying down on a sidewalk face down. Thanks, Allison, for sharing that your perspective of just your personal experience. And I think that that's one of the things lawmakers will be grappling with. What are some of the downsides of ketamine in certain circumstances versus weighing that with the necessity when paramedics feel like they do need to use that? We'll be following that as it, as it moves through the Capitol. And I would like to end this episode where we began, in a way, talking about last year's police reform bill. Representative Herod is back again this session with revisions and some updates. 
Representative Herod and, and some of the advocates felt like Senate Bill 217 was a great achievement last year, but there were some unfinished things in that bill that they wanted to push forward this year, including when officers can use deadly force. They wanted to add that qualified immunity piece we mentioned at the very beginning of this episode um, to state troopers. They mm-hmm. were excluded last year from that. Making thing. it easier to making it easier to sue um, an individual state trooper. Um, there are some things in this bill that she's trying to just move forward from last year, but there's been some backlash. Yes, I think that's right. And some of the opposition to this bill is similar to what we were talking about with the measure that would limit the number of instances in which police can arrest someone. I talked to Republican Senator Bob Gardner. He sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee and He said the bills he's seen so far, this measure with Herod and other measures, would need extensive changes before he could support them. He did back last summer's major police reform proposal, but ultimately he thinks that piece of legislation was too rushed. I don't regret voting yes on it. I think we had to do what was right and appropriate at the time. At the same time, I and and others said, we're going to be back revisiting this because there are things in this bill that need to be tightened up. For a major, major piece of legislation, the bill happened so quickly that there were bound to be issues. His biggest concern, and we're hearing this from law enforcement, is how they grapple with when they can use force and when they can't. And he feels like it's not simply will law enforcement comply with this. He says you really have to train officers to have these standards in their head, to have it be so automatic. And he feels like it's confusing and can't be implemented easily. Just to go back to the point that I've made earlier, which is that, you know, law enforcement would say we're still trying to figure this out. We're still in the middle of our professional development training. Can we get through that first before you start adding more things to our plate? But, you know, I think, you know, Representative Harrow would say, we're not adding more to your plate. We're making sure that, you know, we don't have loose ends on what we really ultimately want to do, which is change the way officers use force in Colorado and, you know, require de-escalation before they use deadly force and, and some of those issues. We talk about Colorado politics every week on Purplish and have those moments that make us take a pause and say, wait, what? Anything come to you recently, Allison? Well, I I mean, this wasn't on my beat at all, but I, I was when I saw the headline that Governor Polis was not going to sign or was going to veto the big climate bill that Democrats at the legislature have been working on for months, um, I was shocked. <laughs> Yes, that was a big moment. This threat of a veto will probably escalate this divide among Democrats about how to reduce the state's contribution to global warming. And Polis really prefers more um, incentives and getting businesses to voluntarily collaborate. And other Democrats want to trigger you know, mandatory regulations that the state could enforce. Yeah, and I think, you know, broadly, this speaks a little bit to something interesting about Governor Polis, which is that he doesn't fit into political boxes very well. Mm-hmm. You know, and on on this beat, on the on the criminal justice beat, a lot of advocates are frustrated and have been frustrated with him for a long time for not prioritizing, for example, vaccinating prisoners. A lot of states did, mm-hmm. even like 
Nebraska <laughs> and okay. New Mexico put prisoners in one of the 1B, 1A, you know, categories because they live in a group setting yeah. and they're at higher risk of getting it. But he didn't do that. He he was actually even sued for not doing that. And yeah. he just never changed that. Um, he didn't do a lot of early releases from prison. Um, he was worried about what message that would send. So a lot of people in my beat area would say he's not at all been a bleeding heart on criminal justice reform. Um, and I guess now the enviros will have maybe a similar complaint. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's, I know it's a top priority for Democrats and for Polis. It's just how do you get there? And so we will see what happens. We still have a few weeks left in the session. That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back in your feeds next week. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Berkland with my colleague, Allison Sherry. You can find me online on Twitter at Allison Sherry. And I'm at Benta Berkland. This is Purplish from CPR News.